All right, on to Ronin Rescue Cast number 16. In keeping with our little mantra that we're following about doing some interviews and looking at some different types of equipment and whatnot, today we're going to be interviewing one of the owners of Ronin Rescue, Kevin Ristow. He led our Grimp team for four of the six years, Kevin? Well, I've been the team lead for four of the... Well, seven competitions. Four of the seven, okay. And um, he's going to talk a little bit about some of what he's learned from Grimp from a team lead. And I know we've done a couple of podcasts on Grimp Day, but that's going to be the quick part of this. And then we're going to dig into leadership and team leadership of a rescue team using Grimp Day as an example and just some of the lessons learned from a leadership point of view if you're running rescue teams. So, without any further ado, Kevin, I'll let you uh, start in on this. Oh, well, thanks, Mark. Thanks for the opportunity to, to talk about this. One of uh, definitely one of the subjects I'm most enjoy. Just the everything about Grimp is a fantastic experience. And yeah, I've been um, lucky enough to be able to have been team lead for four. Yeah, four of the seven competitions. I was controller on one, uh, missed a couple. And it's just a fantastic experience in working with the the team of guys that we've been able to put together, and as that team has evolved over the years, has been just amazing. Uh, and this, uh, what we're going to be talking about here, is going over the presentation I gave at Eiders last fall, the International Technical Rescue Symposium, just talking about Grimp and a lot of the things we've learned from a mostly from a team perspective. There's so many different things we could talk about, but this really, uh, when I set this presentation up, was just talking about if you want to have an effective team, these are the kind of keys to, to success that we found have worked for us in terms of the abilities you want to have and how you want to manage your team. And so the first question everybody has is, what does GRIMP, what does GRIMP mean? And GRIMP, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation here. Your French isn't any good? <laughs> no. Um, Groups de reconnaissance at intervention, intervention at milieu parallel. Uh, literally, um, the French literal translation for Grimp is to climb to seas with claws or nails. That's actually originally an old Saxon term, and they've taken the the Grimp uh, word in in French and turned it into an acronym. Basically, it's their perilous intervention team. Perilous Rapid Intervention Team. And so what we would consider USAR as far as that over here or no structural collapse, more rope technical? As far as I know, it's primarily rope rescue based, technical okay. rescue. I don't, uh, we know that they, generally speaking, most of the teams in Europe aren't doing a lot of confined space, uh, although they're sort of starting to look at that. And I don't know about, I know a lot of the heavy rescue teams in Germany um, they're doing trench and building collapse, but I don't know. The Grimp is the French term, so f- French teams, Belgian teams, they, they refer to themselves as Grimp teams. Uh, I don't know what their capabilities are in those other directions. Alrighty. Uh, just briefly, the the Grimp competition, and, and I'm going to be speaking here about the Grimp competition in Namur. There's a number of them now around the world. Uh, it's the Namur one is the original one, and uh, the first couple of years we went, it was a one-day six scenario event it's now a two-day ten scenario event and actually this this year they added a third day of some rope access challenges to it as well so but the competition is primarily two days ten scenarios you get 90 minutes per scenario and usually one of those scenarios will be a medical scenario where you're also judged on your the medical care of uh, the patient it is a judged competition there's a scoring system each competition has a a score sheet that you go by and it's well it's pretty straightforward to us now uh, the rules are relatively simple usually um, but the things they, they score you on the team leader himself gets scored on how well he decides or describes his plan how well he controls the team and whether or not the plan that he selected was appropriate the team members get scored on their equipment operation safety, their technical performance. Uh, they look closely at the carabiners to make sure they're situated protect- properly. And rope protection. Rope protection is paramount in Europe. Ropes essentially touch nothing other than carabiners, pulleys, or rope protection. 
um, points off anytime rope touches some kind of an edge. And our, your handling of the victim is also scored. Uh, in China, for instance, we had 10 minutes to uh, access the victim, and our score in that was on a sliding scale. Of, so we got, were scored higher the more quickly we could get a rescuer to the victim. And making sure the victim is safe at all times, two points of connection, etc., properly attached to the system, and attended to continuously, those things are all scored. Although I should mention... The attended to continuously, that was off the China score sheet. In Namur, historically, um, each snare has been different, and one of the scenario criterion is whether or not the victim needs to be attended throughout the scenario. And generally speaking, simple rules, two points of contact for the patient at all times. Um, The criteria for timing for start and end are laid out in the scenario briefing. And any specific requirements, certain scenarios, they require the patient perhaps to be vertical or horizontal, to be attended, unattended, whether it's a medical, etc. And then the team. The team uh, makeup is pretty simple. Seven people all told, the team leader, four rescuers, a patient, and a controller. So the patient is the patient for all of the scenarios. And the controller is off judging other teams. So when you get assigned a scenario from control at the competition, you also get assigned a controller. That controller is from any one of the other teams in the competition. So it's one of the interesting parts of the competition, uh, mixing it up, is that you, you get judged by people from, well, all over the world with different levels of experience and abilities and different ways of looking at things. And being a controller is a... A very interesting job because you get to, you definitely get to see a whole lot more. When you're rigging and grimp, when you're in, in the team and you're doing the scenarios, you're very much focused and lots of tunnel vision. You don't get to see a lot of what's going on beside you, even literally right beside you at times. But as controller, you get to see oh, all the teams that you judge, plus you usually have the ability to step back and, and watch other teams. So from a learning how other people do things perspective, being a controller is a super interesting position. Now, with the team leader, you said there's four rescuers, so you're leading a team of five, including yourself, or leading four other people. Correct. All right. So, small team evolutions. And something that we've learned and and proven at GRIMP is that a small, highly skilled, highly trained team is very capable. And lots of times when you talk about doing, let's say, let's go do a high line today or something, and some people who aren't as skilled or experienced are going to talk about how many people that's going to take. Well, we're doing it with five people, and we're doing it quickly. That 90-minute scenario time frame is, as a team lead, I get briefed on the scenario. I have as much time as I want to do a reconnaissance and to think and make a plan, but once I open my mouth and start briefing my team, generally that's when time starts. And at night... At the end of that 90 minutes, we have to be completed the scenario and all equipment back in the stretcher. You don't have all the time in the world to look at it because you do have a time frame over the entire day, yes. too. <laughs> yes, yes. But they don't pressure me on the on my reconnaissance and my, my, my planning stage. Um, but yeah, so small, highly trained team is very capable. So we've been through seven competitions, and we learned some lessons. And some of them we learned the hard way. Some of them we had to learn more than once. Um, <laughs> kind of as it always goes. And it took the, you know, the first year, we were just happy to be there and happy to compete and happy to finish. And then the second year, we trained a whole bunch for the second year. We didn't really improve understanding a whole lot, and we were kind of frustrated at that. And so the third year, we tore everything apart. And so a lot of the things we're going to talk about, that's, it really took us a couple of competitions before we started working on some of these, these keys to success, but um, they've paid off. And the, the five kind of keys to success that I focused on, number one, training methodology. Uh, you've got to train and you have to ha- have a system of training for it to be successful. You have to have good, effective rigging systems that can accomplish the goal and a lots of times the, the focus is really on, on the whole rigging system, but there's so much else to, to remember. You have to have a stretcher rigging system specifically that's uh, capable of working in across multiple evolutions. Your rescuers need to be mobile. And 
lastly, rescue team management. So just to dig into to each of these, starting with training methodology, the first thing is there's a difference between, you know, a lot of people use the term training. And if you're going to train, you literally need to do things repetitively. That's what the word means. When you train, you set something up, you practice it, and then you do it again, and then you do it again, and you do it again. If you only do thing, something once, you're not training. You need to do it repetitively in order to call it training. And repetitive system building. Figure out the systems you're going to use and just build them over and over again. You don't even have to run them, um, although at some point you do, but just building them over and over again in the shop because it's the building of the system that really seems to tax the, the individual rescuer's um, ability in terms of remembering all the different systems. We're going to talk about what they are in a few minutes. So build them repetitively so that you know all the different pieces, where they go, and you can just say, okay, we're going to build system X, and your everybody in your team can fly at it and create that system. Um, repetition, 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 and then go out and run those systems repetitively. But even just shop floor time, um, repetitive system building is, is good training. Then practice scenarios. Identify a patient location, um, what their condition is, and where we have to move that patient from A to B and what the, the end goal is. And then no stopwatch, no time, just build the system, package the patient, run the system, move the patient to the endpoint, and uh, tear down the system. And just do that, again, repetitively, practicing. And each time you practice, you might focus on this or, or tweak that, but just the 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 objective is again repetition now of actually running the whole thing as a scenario so identifying what the challenge is running a briefing assigning tasks building the system operating the system and tearing it down complete finish to end and as you do that a few times you do some repetition you'll start to get faster and once you're happy and you're comfortable with how you're running those scenarios then you challenge yourself. And the first place to challenge yourself is with a stopwatch. Just start timing yourself. Then pick different locations. Um, throw different angles. Instead of running everything top down, start at the bottom. Um, come up with challenge snares that are going to challenge the team, challenge their rigging abilities. Come up with snares that are going to challenge your systems. You've, you've built some systems. At this point, if you've done a whole bunch of repetition and you've done a bunch of practice scenarios you're probably pretty happy with your systems and with yourselves so go to different locations different training locations change up how you're training so that it challenges you you know if you're comfortable building a high line go somewhere where it's further or it's higher or it's more difficult um, to try and find any weaknesses in your system and most importantly is you need to remember to challenge the leader and the reason I say this most importantly is because this is the most important one to remember. As a team lead, and this definitely happened to me, I fell into this trap. Um, I was happy with how my team was performing. We'd practiced the systems. We'd torn them down. We'd built them up. We'd come up with some good stuff. And I could get to the point where I was challenging the team from time to time. However, nobody was challenging me. And... But what I mean by that is if I'm always, if it's the team leader who's always coming up with the scenarios and even the challenge scenarios, the team leader already has the picture in his head. So I realized what I needed was I need somebody else to be challenging me, somebody else to be advising these challenge scenarios and presenting them to me in a way that would challenge me that I could then turn and give to the team and we could run uh, and then therefore get critiqued. So don't forget to challenge the team leader. It's very easy to do things repetitively and get comfortable and be happy with yourselves and go out and run a practice scenario and pat yourself on the back afterwards. And if you're doing that, that's great. But then if you're at that point, then your next step is you need to challenge yourselves. The rigging systems. Uh, I'm not going to get too deep into the rigging systems here. One of the most interesting things about GRIMP is seeing how 30 different teams are going to rig a high line to get a stretcher across a river. And yes, there could be 30 different ways of actually building the system, you know, using the same pile of carabiners and pulleys and tools that we all have to pick from, uh, so many different ways to do things. So 
rather than defining how we built the systems, just generally speaking, most of our systems now we run as twin tension rope systems. There are teams that are competing and doing well using dedicated main dedicated belay systems. We've gone to twin tension rope systems primarily because of the small team. With only five people on your team that are hands on the equipment and one of them is usually dedicated to the patient, with twin tension systems I don't have a belayer whose only job is manning a belay. With twin tension systems I can have two ropes both with MA so I have all hands on or as many hands as I have hauling or operating systems that are contributing to the movement of the load. I just find that in a dedicated main dedicated belay system your belayer is not contributing to the movement of the load. So it's interesting because most of the teams that I've seen that have teams that don't use dedicated or sorry that don't use TTRS and use dedicated main dedicated belay they uh, run ASAP locks at the anchor and the team leader actually run that's his job is running a belay man as well okay. as the team lead and otherwise yeah they're, they're running out of bodies in order and, to do that and that's where you've had the opportunity to be controller more than I have yeah <laughs> so I haven't I haven't seen that as much Sloping high lines have been quite common uh, in twin tracks. So everything we do that's a tension line system has twin tracks. In Europe, they won't accept a single tension track line um, in any guise. Um, even the North American guide and line load only meter off the ground. Uh, it's just not accepted. So everything is twin track. Um, and sloping high line, twin track lines, and uh, usually a twin tension raising or lowering system to run that set up. Skate blocks are also pretty common. Again, twin track skate blocks. So two lines operated from the ground up through a change of direction that has at least two points of connection to the anchor. Um, and again, usually running a twin tension system on the skate block. We do practice and have used the tight line or single tension line skate block set up as well. Um, that's a handy one to know. Uh, little and that's running the ASAP on one of those tight yeah, lines? Yeah, so one of the track lines is fixed with an ASAP running on it, and the second line is a true skate block. So only one line is actually skating. You've got one track, one skate line um, to get a, your two ropes into the system. That's useful when you are you need to clear some obstacles, because you need to put a little bit more tension to your, to your skate block. A slope system, slope rescues, uh, or you're moving the patient on some kind of a slope, again, pretty common. Um, so many different ways to do this. Uh, this is probably one of the areas where we've seen the most, literally the most variety of different ways to move the patient over sloping ground. Um, some different structure designs out there that allow for some different options that we just don't have with our... You're talking about the Swiss casket. team with yeah, putting them the on the Swiss shoulder? Team, the <laughs> stretcher's got attachments for, you know, yokes for going on the shoulders. And, man, got to play with that one day. So, yeah, have a good slope system. Uh, we've kind of, when possible, we like to use a twin tension counterbalance system um, if the slope's open enough to allow for that. So our, our riggers are just walking down the slope, the rope's running through an MPD and back down to the stretcher. And we found that works pretty well. Obviously, it's kind of situational dependent whether or not you can run that, but um, seems to be the most efficient way rather than just purely hauling is get some body weight, some counterweight in there. Cross haul system is very handy. Uh, cross haul, uh, quite simply, is just two two rope systems acting against each other. If you haul on both of them from either side of uh, an, an area and patients in the middle, your patient package, you haul on both systems, the load goes up. You raise one system, you lower the other system, the load moves to the side that's that's doing the raising. And cross hauls are very powerful, they're very effective, they're relatively simple to, to engineer and to rig. They're a little bit inefficient in terms of effort because you're if you're simply trying to raise the load, the two teams are basically, well, they have to literally work against each, each other. other. They're fighting each other. Um, but they can be quick and powerful and, and simple and sometimes definitely um, the easiest solution. High lines. High lines are always the big show at, uh, at Grimp. 
everything from, well, sloping high lines we already mentioned, um, just simply twin track horizontal high lines and some kind of a twin track reeving system. So commonly we'll have to move the, uh, the load both vertically and horizontally to negotiate an obstacle, whether it's buildings, gullies, castle moats, um, you name it. Um, they've got some fantastic territory for running high lines uh, over there, and we've built a lot of them. Now, you mentioned twin reeving. What about using the old Kootenai system with your prussics that we are taught here in the Provincial Emergency Program or in the rope rescue programs in the mountain? Yeah, again, that system is not one that simply, it would literally would not be allowed at, at Grimp. You have to have two ropes attached to the load. So we've we've practiced and we've built a number of systems to do this. Either we've done a two-rope Norwegian reeve. We've done, we our go-to system nowadays is a two a double-rope English reeve. So two track lines, two reeving lines, just sit, simply two lines mirroring each other for the English reeve or Norwegian reeve. Um, and that, so the two-rope English reeve is our go-to. You, it takes five or six ropes, depending upon the, the length of, of span. So it is a lot of equipment in play. But for us, it's the one that works. Uh, relatively common setup in Europe is doing either an English or a Norwegian-style reeve with one rope. And the second rope goes to a change of direction on the carriage and is run just as a belay. Um, so that does simplify the equipment concerns, etc. But no, the, Norwe- the North American... Two prussics on either side of a pulley on a single reeve line, uh, it, it wouldn't be allowed. There's got to be two ropes attached to the load. Okay. He's just going through his PowerPoint presentation <laughs> now. Instead of so, looking at pictures that you when you're delivered, it's a little different on a podcast. Yeah, we, you know, at at, uh, at Grimp in Namur and in China. Used, you got to get used to rigging and running your snares of people literally pointing cameras in your faces. And the upside is we've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of fantastic photos. So when I did the presentation at Eiders, there's lots of pictures that were put up. And this is going to be posted on the Eiders website. So you can find this PowerPoint on the Eiders website and, and look at the, the photos. Uh, some of them are pretty descriptive of just some of the scenarios we've, we've done. So I was able to use the pictures and talk to the to the photographs a lot more than the um, presentation. Just a note about anchors. Anchoring at Grimp uh, traditionally has been you're given your anchors, you're given a lane to work in, and one of the parameters that we were always told is don't question the anchors. Basically, treat them as bomber. And if you listen to the one of the previous podcasts <laughs> yeah. about the so, anchors in China, then you'll know that this is changing. <laughs> yeah. So the anchors that were commonly used in Namur were these these blocks, these concrete blocks they, they created. They, they made some metal forms and filled them with concrete. They're 800 kilograms a piece. And we either had one or two of those to work with as our anchor anchors at a lot of stations. Other than that, it's trees or structure. A lot of vehicle anchors. In China, it was a lot of vehicle anchors. And yes, in Taiwan, uh, and I, Mark was at the Taiwanese competition, I wasn't there. Um, one of the things that Jay did was try to introduce some anchors that weren't so bomber. and How to use them, how to tie them back. <laughs> yeah. That might have been lost in translation somewhere there. Once again, there's another podcast yeah. previous that you so can that's listen a, to. That's an that. entirely different discussion. I think one of the things about when you're running something as a competition, you're creating a, an, a, you're creating an environment and running the environment with anchors that were good and anchors that we didn't question allowed us to really concentrate on the rigging and the team and moving the patient. Uh, it definitely creates a whole other world of challenge if in the competitive environment your anchors are now not um, completely sufficient. So that's an interesting twist and like I said, I wasn't there. Uh, it's definitely something to think about and talk about and um, well, we'll see if it uh, if it's a trend that continues in the future. But it is definitely something we're, we're going to have to incorporate into our training now is a little bit more on anchoring. Uh, stretcher rigging. Quite simply, in GRIMP, you need to have a stretcher rig that is capable of both horizontal and vertical movement of the load. 
as well as being able to transition that stretcher from horizontal to vertical and from vertical to horizontal while there's a patient on it and while you are suspended. And one example of this is uh, the sloping high line we had in China a couple months ago. And the stretcher, it was a long, long distance, and the stretcher crossing the river could not have been vertical. It had to be horizontal or the patient would have been wet. Um, but when we got up to the, the roadway, we, had, uh, we were anchoring off our bus and through change of directions based on the guardrail posts. And those guardrail posts were maybe two feet high. So we did not have a high point, a high directional. Um, we had very limited headroom. And there was a, a vertical concrete um, abutment that the stretcher came up against. So we had to transition the stretcher to vertical. And the tenant was able to do that while we were still moving him horizontally. He was able to transition the stretcher to vertical. So that was a, a seamless process. When they got to the concrete abutment, we just kept hauling. The stretcher came up vertically. And then we did an edge transition, a vertical stretcher edge transition from there. And speaking of edge transitions, being able to do a pike piking edge transition is pretty important. Um, that would be both up and down. Both up and down. Uh, at times, you've, you may have In the to, same scenario. <laughs> yes, multiple times. You may have to keep the patient vertical. That may be a requirement of the scenario. Um, or in one scenario we had, we had to begin vertically, transition to horizontal, and at some point uh, going down the cliff face, we had to go vertical again to actually manage uh, a transition through an obstacle. So uh, piking edge transition, so a pike and pivot, um, if that's what you use, is traditionally used here in North America and works well uh, coming up. Uh, you may need want to work and practice and, and modify your edge transition so that you can do a piking edge transition, uh, both lowering the stretcher overward, over, bring it back up over an edge, and also with and without an attendant attached to the stretcher. And also resetting it so that it can be used at multiple times in, or multiple uh, yeah, you times may have, in a scenario. We've had scenarios with multiple edge transitions. So not just the one edge transition at the top and you do a pike and pivot and boom, it's done. No, it's we're raising or lowering a stretcher over multiple edges and we may have to run that pike um, transition several times. Which brings us to our attendant. And this is one of the big changes in terms of not a lot of people in North America put a lot of emphasis on mobility of attendance. You know, if I, I've gone through the literature and um, the only book I've found in North America that really puts emphasis on that is Vertical Academy in, in terms of having rescuers who are really capable, who are really mobile. It is a requirement of NFPA uh, operations level that you can ascend and descend rope. And in my experience, a lot of training agencies and a lot of rescue agencies if they do it they do it as a tick box and then they kind of forget about it just um, give it lip service li unfortunately yes and they say no no we raise and lower everything um and unfortunately we're missing out on a whole nother dimension of rescue getting a patient or getting a rescuer to the patient is accomplished much more quickly if i just turn to you mark and say mark get to the patient you have the equipment and the training to rig two fixed lines, throw an ASAP on, get on your descent device, a quick uh, second check by one other person, and boom, you are over the edge and gone and to the patient. And as a team lead, all I've done is say, Mark, get to the patient. The only thing I get back is I've been cross-checked, I'm ready to go, and I say go. And that's as much attention as it takes for me as a team lead to get a rescue to the patient. And it is very quick and, again, Getting a rescue to the patient, it's not just about competition and about points. That's part of it. It's grimp, obviously, but we're not providing any kind of care to the patient until we get a rescue to them. We don't know what the condition of the patient is and, therefore, what impact the patient's condition may have on our transport decision until we get a rescue to the patient. Obviously, there's some caveats there, i.e. in confined space, etc. Um, we need to mitigate hazards before we can get a rescuer there, um, but that's a different subject. So yeah, so anyway, mobility of attendant, and this is something we're concentrating a lot more on, attendants or, or rescuers 
and every rescuer in the team is equipped to both climb and descend on their own. So that's some kind of a backup device, a rope climbing system, and their own personal descender. Everybody in the team is mobile. That means my rescuer who is attending the patient, he can move up and down the stretcher, whether the stretcher is horizontal or vertical, he's mobile. He can move around the stretcher to negotiate obstacles. Um, my rescuer can get to the patient on his own and he can climb out on his own, which means my, again, we only have five people in the team. If I send one to the patient, I've only got four people available to haul. Instead of hauling both patient and rescuer, the rescuer is climbing out, um, often beside, still attending the patient, climbing beside the patient. That's common when we were in uh, Asia. I saw that a lot in Taiwan. You saw it in China where mm -hmm. you have that climbing rescuer just to reduce the load on the MA that uh, the people are hauling mm -hmm. on, the rest of the yeah. team. And Richard Delaney spoke about this when he presented at Eiders a couple of years ago, how having a rescuer climbing um, beside the patient, it just, yeah, it reduces the load on the system, which makes the system safer, reduces the effort that has to be put out by the haul team, and the perhaps... Um, area where it has the greatest benefit is in edge transitions, suspended rescuer edge transitions. When you have a rescuer who's not on the system, but he's over the edge, the ability to move the patient up and over the edge, both going both from suspension up and over onto the horizontal or from the horizontal area over the, over the edge, whatever it may be, be a bit of guardrail or a low edge transition and down until it's suspended under the rope is done so much more quickly and so much more efficiently when you have suspended rescuers, ideally two. So two people over the edge, one at the head end, one at the foot end of the stretcher, each on a two-rope system, each able to go down and up on their own. Um, it's so much easier to do a smooth edge transition, even with a high point. Um, we had a bridge scenario in China. We had a, a vortex set up. We had a great high point. I still had two people over the edge. That stretcher came up and over the railing very, very easily. Uh, and low point edge transition, it's even more powerful. So that's definitely something that we're training a lot and introducing. In fact, uh, when we're training, um, I was training an industrial team last month and we practiced that. And an edge transition, it's commonly the most uh well, it's the most dangerous part <laughs> it's the most dangerous part from a physics perspective it's the and it's the most um tenuous part of an operation just from a patient handling perspective it's the area of the rescue where we're most likely to have an oops moment a shift or a, a drop that um creates a, a sudden transition of force on our system when we have suspended rescuers we just or reduce it. We reduce the potential for that so much, and we make the whole thing so much easier. So um, it's definitely the way we're moving forward and something I really like to see uh, a lot of other teams in North America adopt. Um, we have the requirement in NFPA to, to be able to climb and descend uh, as, a, as a training point, and if we can practice that and make more use of it and get more rescuers over the edge, our edge transition is going to be a whole lot safer. Once again, jumping slides here. So this is the big one that I wanted to get into really deep into the weeds here. I know we've already been 30 minutes and that's fine. Uh, the rescue team management, because I don't think there's a lot talked about rescue team management from the team lead point of view. So yeah, turn it back over to you. There's a, there's a smattering of stuff in the, in the literature and the various you know, rope rescue manuals that are out there about team management and team organization. Um, but it didn't really speak to small teams. It certainly didn't speak to small high-performance teams. And, you know, I've been doing rope rescue now for over a decade. Um, you guys have you, you even longer than me. And watching and looking back at my experiences on various different teams, various different courses uh, in the way teams are managed, there's definitely been a lot to be desired. And, you know, any system, if a a group of people spends enough time together training in one system, they're going to get good at it. But the the real test is if we change a bunch of people out, we change the, the scope of the team, um, or we 
we let our training lapse, uh, which let's face it, in the real world, we most of us run in training cycles. We train for a course or an event or a challenge scenario. And then if you're like me and you're on a big red truck, we've got, I've got to train firefighting. I've got to train medical. I've got to train structural collapse. I've got to train trench rescue. Confined space. Confined space, swift, you know, swift water. So it may be a while before we get back to our rope training. So the question is, is does your team management, does it suffer when you're away from training? I think most of us, it probably does. When we have dedicated training cycles, our team operates well. So finding a solution that worked well for a small high-performance team and that also worked well um, just from a human behavior perspective so that it, it took that human behavior stuff into account so that when we did get together and operate, um, things went well instead of, things breaking down because we haven't been training together and we've a few of the ideas we're going to talk about not our own the um the team organization span of control stuff that came from xavier tourney no more fire uh the safety check system is a combination of xavier tourney's and, and axel manz's and i'll talk about some of the other stuff as we get to it but even in a team that's five people and as a team lead, you have four people reporting to you. Breaking that, those people into elements has made life a whole lot easier. So quite simply, we organize our team. We have the team lead, and I have a rescuer team, rescue one, rescue two, and a rigging team, rigger one, rigger two. And those guys know going into a scenario or the competition or a live rescue that the rescue team it's those guys whose job it's going to be to get to the patient. It's those guys whose job is going to be to package and attend the patient and be the over-the-edge people. So they're able to set up their equipment, but more importantly, their mindset to that task. Consequently, the rigging team, they know that they're the engine. They're looking for anchors right away. What's the rope path going to be? What kind of system am I going to have to rig and set up and operate? So... They're already looking at that. They don't have to wait for an assignment. When I'm off getting the team, getting the briefing, preparing my plan, etc., their minds are already engaged um, in those directions. A couple of points on that. I mean, I'm generally a rigger because I'm pushing just over 200 bills there. <laughs> um, think about that when you put your team together. The guys that are generally our rescuers right now wear medium T-shirts and they're you know probably in the one the buck sixty range. So when you're hauling, if you have to. The riggers are generally pushing over 200 pounds. They're used to hauling. I mean, that's just the way it is. As well, like Kevin mentioned, the gear. As a rigger, I'm carrying a 25-foot sling, 240s, 120s, 10-footers, um, like just a, a plethora of wire straps, uh, you know, just a bunch of different types so that when we get to a location, I have that solution in my pack or on my body already. Kevin already knows that, hey, I want you to rig this. It's not like I'm searching through the rescuer's kit looking for that gear. It's already on me. Yeah, correct. So it's a bit, it's, and it's not just size. It's also skill level. If you've got a real rope gun, put him as a, he's probably going to be one of your rescuers. And sure, the riggers are going to be carrying more anchoring options. The rescuers are going to be traveling a little lighter because they're either going to be lowered or hauled or lowering or climbing uh, or descending or climbing themselves. So... But dividing your team, even a small team, uh, into elements, even just two elements, just decreases your span of control. I'm worried about two sets of people, my rescuers and my riggers. I'm not now worried about four people and four people's individual actions. So as a team lead, that's half my span of control. It's half the number of assignments or things that I need to think about and differentiate in my, my briefing or in my, my orders and just frees up space in my mind to allow me to think and to think ahead and to work on the next phases of the plan. Part of that span of control and the elements is having a safety check system that works when you as the team, that doesn't require a team lead or a safety officer intervention. Commonly in North America, and there's reasons for this, and it's um, and I'm not decrying the system of having either a separate safety officer or the team lead um, act as a safety officer. However, what I commonly see in North American style rescue is the team builds a system and then everything stops. 
while we, you know, run a dedicated safety check, once we're happy, then everything goes again. And I find it's it's somewhat pedantic and it's it's inefficient. We don't have a lot of concurrent activity going on. And also it kind of removes the onus of responsibility from your, your team members. So working through GRIMP, we realized very quickly that our safety check system was inefficient in terms of time. So we, we tried different things. We pushed it in terms of speed. We tried uh, just a bunch of different ways to try and speed the system up. And what we've ended up using, again, we this came from, well, both Xavier Attorney and Axel Manns have slightly different takes on it. And sort of this is our system. Our safety check system is based on everybody self-checks. So whatever you build or rig or attach to a system, whether it's you or a patient or an anchor or a control device, you are responsible for self-checking the system. Again, part of this is about putting the onus of responsibility back on the team members. You also have to remember here we are talking of high-performance teams. We're not talking about people that this is their first time or it's a tertiary duty and they haven't done it in a while. Correct. This is Not only does this system need to be trained, these are well-trained people. And this is not a system that you would rely on, for instance, in a new learner or a poorly trained environment. I might teach this system to new learners or to people who are less trained. However, I would still be having a separate TL or safety officer check over top of it until they gain competence in this style of system. So again, the first step is a self-check. Once you've built the rig something, you self-check it and make a point of self-checking it. And when I say make a point of self-checking it, that point is verbalized. So Mark's gonna go ahead and, like I said, he's usually on the rigging team. He rigs an anchor, he rigs his control device into that anchor, he's all set to go, and before he says ready, he goes, all right, self-check, goes back, self-checks it, and he reports not to the team lead, but he reports to his element partner. So on the rigging team, if Mark's rigger one, he reports to rigger two. I've built uh, the system here, self-check is complete. Ideally, his partner will be running neck and neck with him, hopefully beating him, um, so that he can go, okay, I've completed my self-check, and then the two switch, and they complete a cross-check. So after a a system has been built and self-checked by one person, his element partner comes over and cross-checks it. So what we end up here is we have four eyes, so we have two different people looking at any system or any piece that's rigged. Once that cross-check is complete, the element reports to the team lead. Team lead, two ropes, two anchors, cross-check complete. As a team lead, I don't need to turn around and go back to the anchors and pedantically work through the anchors and the control devices and do a, a separate safety check. If I have faith, if I have trust in my people because they're, they've been, they're trained and they're competent, that is all I should need. That is not to say I wouldn't do a team lead check. That whenever I have the ability as a team lead, I will go back and check whenever I have the time. But I may not have the ability. I may not be present. For instance, I've sent one or two rescuers to package the patient. They could be distant from me by up to 100 meters. Just a, That's just a common rope length in GRIMP is 100 meters. Maybe more. They may be uh, in the you know different environments. They might be in a confined space. They might be on the other side of a river or an obstacle. So as a team lead or safety officer is not always able to go and check um, all components of the rigging. And this is sort of a a, a little talked about um, part of the traditional safety officer or or team lead safety officer um, conducting a safety check is what do you do for the parts of the system that you can't safety check. So our cross-check solves that. So if I've sent two rescuers to package a patient, they're cross-checking each other's work, they report up team lead, patient's packaged, and attached to the system, two connections, cross-check complete. Again, that's all I need. My system is safety checked and I'm ready to go. As an aside, we've done or tried to do a North American style previously at GRIMP where we've tried like iPhones or remote cameras or these types of things. And what we found is A, it slowed down the system, which causes some momentum loss within it. 
B, it starts to introduce subjectivity. The TL, where it might be safe, but the TL wants it rigged slightly different, and they have them change that, but then it, it causes a cascade effect down the, the train because all of a sudden the rescuer's thinking, you know, I'm going to come off to the left, I'm going to come up, and he's got it pieced out in his head, and a slight change gets done, and it's not, once again, that it's unsafe. It might almost be like a micromanagement where, okay, now... I've, you have now changed that portion and it's causing a, a further effect down the road. So as long as the system's safe and been cross-checked, it allows those people to run as a high-performance team, um, doing their own plan as part of that, you know, their own tactic as part of the team leader strategy. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, very definitely. Um, you don't want to slow down momentum. You want to keep your momentum up. And as a team lead, you don't want to interfere too much with what your elements are doing. As a team lead, I give my elements a job that's part of an overall bigger picture. I trust them to do that job. I don't need to micromanage that. If it doesn't look exactly the way I might want to see it rigged, it doesn't matter as long as it's going to function and accomplish the objective as part of the bigger picture. So, yeah, and again, it's this is high-performance team stuff. This is well-trained team stuff. And if I had a team that was... At a, at a lesser level of training, I would be have more oversight as a team lead. Yeah, I've still moved to teaching the cross check system, however, because I believe we need to uh, we should be teaching this from right from the start. That way, the rescuers are as they progress through their training level are. Um, are they've been training that system since day one, rather than making a change. Just I change how much oversight I put on as a TL based upon the training level and competency of the people that I'm working with. It is sure. called technical rescue. It is. <laughs> and and this stuff is hard. This stuff is hard. Um, and it takes a long time for people to gain true competency. It takes a lot of training hours and a lot of dedication. And we know that. Um, and when we, we shouldn't try and fool ourselves to think that a four-day course makes anybody a rope rescuer. Um, certainly takes a lot more than that. Lot, lots of experience, <laughs> lots of training. Yeah, so those kind of fit hand in hand, the safety check system and the, the team organization, the elements, uh, and they work well together. And it's actually, it's a, a simple system we put into practice and we haven't just done it with our, our GRIMP teams. Like I said, I've, I've used this training, some industrial uh, rescue teams, and it gets picked up quickly it's it's simple uh, and it works well which brings us to briefing priorities as a as a team lead i've had to put a lot of thought into how do i direct the team and well <laughs> i've always had a maxim that the less i say as a team leader and instructor the better um, and just let the team run and when you have a well-trained team you can can certainly do that but i have to say the right enough of the right things to put the team in the right frame of mind so everybody's working with the same picture. And I did some research on this, and a fellow by the name of Gary Klein wrote a book, uh, and the book's a little came out late 80s, early 90s, I think I can't remember the top of my head, called Sources of Power. And Gary Klein did a lot of research, and in fact, he started his research in this direction with firefighters and has also used a lot of military. Uh, personnel, ER doctors and nurses and a few other people. Essentially, he concentrated on people who have to make very important decisions in a limited amount of time, the limited amount of information, and how is it that they're successful? And and what are some of well the keys to, to that success? And it's a great book. It's not a difficult read, and there's a tremendous number of lessons that can be pulled from that book. But one lesson I pulled in particular that was sort of directly applicable to uh, briefing and planning is that as, be, as humans, and again, that human factors are so important, we can only keep so many pieces of information in our head. And uh, through a, a series of studies, uh, Gary Klein states in his book, Sources of Power, that experts and, and well-trained teams can manage three factors and six transition steps. And what he meant by that is three factors about a situation that they're going to have to interact with. 
And so three factors in the, what I've broken this down to is that when I'm describing a scenario or a rescue scenario uh, to a team, I concentrate on three things. I concentrate on the patient, the environment, and the end state. And you can say, you know, more than a few words about each. And the more well-trained my team is, the more information I can put out there. But essentially, I have a patient who's conscious or unconscious, where they are, what the hazards are in their location, right? Are they in a river? Are they in a confined space? Are they on a cliff? Um, or are they in an area that is stable? It's just that it's they need, we need to move them from wherever they are that's stable to another stable location to transport them. Or is they, are they in an unstable or unsafe location? What's the environment? Obviously, weather, day, night, again, confined space, swift water, collapsed environment. You know, what are the hazards sort of surrounding us and the patient and um, et cetera? And three, the end state. Where are we going? And oftentimes people think this is obvious. Well, there's a patient there and I see an ambulance. We just have to get the patient to the ambulance. And lots of times it is obvious, but it may not always be obvious. So it should always be a part of your planning process to identify what the mission end state is. Not only where is the patient going to end up, but where your team, where is your team going to end up? Where are all the individual team members going to be? Because if we have a patient who's in an unstable location and we send rescuers to get them out of there, once the patient's out of there, we may still have rescuers or equipment in that location that we then need to remove in a safe manner. So our job isn't over until all of that is done. So the end state's important. So again, three factors that I, um, when I, when I am given a scenario or a, um, an, a task, these are the things that I, uh, three factors I concentrate when describing that scenario to my team, the patient, the environment, and the end state. And then six transition steps. So when describing a plan, most experts can only keep in their head about six steps to that plan. And again, this varies based on complexity and level of training um, in individual team members, but six is, is a good number. And generally speaking, how I break that down, so I've described the situation we're facing with three factors, the patient, the environment, and the end state. And then I give my plan and I concentrate on six major steps to the plan. Now, these steps may change depending upon different scenarios or different environments or different levels of training. But at GRIMP, this is the, the six steps that I've been trying to stick to. And uh, in China, the, the planning, the briefing went well. The team members' feedback was that um, they definitely appreciated it. And the, the orders, the, the information they were getting was relatively easy for them to remember and to get the big picture on because I've been there before uh, where I've given my team a briefing before I went to the system and I've had half the team going yep got it and the other half team going nope don't understand um, and when you're pressed for time and you're already stressed that's not a good place to be <laughs> <Bit frustrating. laughs> yeah so those six transition steps that I concentrate on when I'm giving my plan number one mitigate mitigate the hazards Two, access who and how are we accessing the patient? How are we getting a rescuer to the patient? Three, rigging. What's our rigging system going to be? Straight raise lower, some kind of a tension line system, whether it be a skate block or horizontal high line or reeving high line, etc. Four, the transition. Again, the edge transition is the most dangerous and part of a, a rope rescue scenario and often the most sort of manpower intensive so a few words on how we're going to manage the transition or how we're going to try and prepare that transition. Five, anything about operating the, the system that we've built. We know what system we're going to do. We understand what, where and when the transition is going to happen and anything else that goes into operating the system. And then six, demobilization. This rounds everything out again back to that end state. How are we going to once we've moved the patient, how are we going to tear down and get all of our people and all of our equipment back to wherever it is they need to be? So again, three factors, six steps. Factors being patient, environment, end state. Steps, mitigate, access, rig, the transition, the operation of the system, and demobilization. 
All of this requires, well, number one, training. You need people who are, are practiced in these techniques and who understand well enough um, what you're asking of them um, to get by with a, a basic briefing without having to do a, a really detailed briefing. But hand in hand with that goes consistent terminology. Terminology is important, so important. And teams that don't have good, consistent terminology at some point are going to run into problems. Um, I just had a rescue a few months ago, um, and the team that I was with, their terminology wasn't the greatest or, or, or wasn't super consistent. And most of the time, in the, the training we'd done and a few other rescues we'd done, it hadn't been a big deal. And it was one of those things that I had decided not to expend leadership capital too much on terminology because we had limited training time. There's other things we needed to train. So as a leader, I let the terminology side of things slide. This rescue, it was in the dark. We, we pretty much used an entire 200-meter rope. Um, so I had people spread vast distances in the bush, up and down the slope. So everything was being run by radio. Now that we weren't face-to-face, now that we couldn't see what somebody was talking about when they were using poor or sloppy terminology and it was happening over the radio, the, the poor terminology had an impact on the operation of the system. So we had to call a stop and we had to um, rectify that mid-rescue. So, again, terminology is important. Sometimes it doesn't really matter what terms you use as long as everybody in the team knows what those terms are and what each one means and that they aren't getting misused or, or traded off one, one for another. So always clean up your, your terminology with your team. Know what you mean when you say raise or lower. Um, for me, if I, if I ask my riggers to fix a line, a line is fixed to an anchor. That means the rope's not moving so I can use it for climbing or, or descending or um, edge restraint. Right versus rig a rope in a system, that means the rope is rigged into some kind of control system. It's going to be used to raise or lower a rope. That's just one sort of small example. And having consistent terminology is going to help to make your communication effective. What does effective communication mean? That's probably a half dozen podcasts right there. <laughs> um, but you have to, number one, have a way to effectively communicate, whether it's by voice or by radio. Uh, you need to have other systems, whether it's whistle or flashlight or air horn, depending upon your environment, the equipment you have, have a backup method of communication. Uh, we were on a job a few weeks ago where we it's were using glow sticks. <laughs> in the silo, yeah, using glow sticks to yeah. communicate. Um, whatever it is, as long as it's effective. And, and glow sticks are simple. And, and you know what? Sometimes simple is the most effective. So have an effective means to communicate, um, whatever that is. Um, and that's very much equipment and environment dependent. So yeah, so that was the sort of the meat of the presentation and kind of brought it all back to what is GRIMP really? Well, yes, GRIMP is definitely a competition. There's winners. Um, it's not, not really losers. losers. Not really losers. There's people that don't finish. Uh, but but everybody are. gets a mention at the, uh, at the soiree at the end. Um... There are trophies, there are points, it's judged, all that sort of thing. Penalties, controversy. Um, what would a sporting event be without Heroics, uh, the whole nine yards. Yes, it's a sport. it is a sporting event. It's a competition. And not only is it a whole lot of fun, obviously everybody that takes part has challenged themselves, done a lot of training, and, and are better rescuers for it. Grim Day's a stress test. Um, there's no doubt about it. It is, it is hard. It is stressful. It is challenging. And it's going to stress things that you know, it's going to stress your preparedness, your systems, your team. Um, we've had systems that didn't work so well and we've had to modify them to, to make sure they work. Uh, we've had systems where, okay, we, we ran them and said that didn't work so well. So the next year we had a new system. Um, every year we've trained more and more and more. And we've had people People break. People get stressed out. People snap. Um, and we've had people perform above and beyond. And that's sort of the beautiful part is not only just individuals, but when the team really performs and takes off and just blitzes a challenge and makes it look easy, um, that's a pretty special moment. 
And the real legacy of Grimp is that the rescue family that is created. We have friends and comrades around the world, quite literally, um, that not only do we have a great time with and get to share stories with and, and get to know, but we share skills, we share ideas. And when people have questions, um, we have a forum that reaches around the world to, to answer those questions. So that's the real legacy of Grimp is bringing together rescuers from around the world so that we can all be better um, yeah, I mean, you mentioned even in the podcast here some of the stuff we've taken away. We've taken directly from other teams. It's just making everybody better overall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that's it for this one. Thank you for your time, Kevin. Um, an hour, probably our longest podcast. Definitely <laughs> worth it. Thank you, Mark. And uh, we'll chat again. Yes, definitely. <laughs>